Well, as I was sort of last minute scrambling for what to put together, I was thinking about the last message I taught from Nehemiah 8, which was several weeks ago, and we were talking about the topic of revival and what it looks like when God moves in a big way among His corporate people. And one of the distinguishing marks we looked at with when God does a work of reformation or a work of revival is that He brings repentance in His people. Uh, He does a work of repentance and He does a work where He reveals Himself in a special way and He reveals the individual in their sin, in their lapses. And revival is um, not just something that rivets our emotions in some positive way, but it really breaks us before it heals us. And the last admonition or, or ex- exhortation I gave at the end of the message was that we would examine ourselves individually whether we're being revived by the Lord. Whether our hearts are not just looking to the culture and the churches at large, or even our church at large, for revival, but that we would always examine ourselves whether we're living out that work we long to see. Are we repenting before the Lord? And so I was thinking about the various psalms that give the individuals and God's people the model for what it looks like to be revived and cry out to Him. And I chose Psalm 51 as a great kind of psalm to lift up as an example of what repentance looks like in the individual. Uh, I've been studying a lot of the Old Testament lately, and the Psalms are interesting because they're the national hymn book for the people of Israel, and they serve as that sort of prayer book for God's people in every age. And they were probably categorized sometime returning from exile, but they take Psalms from various periods of Israel's history that have been preserved. Some are written by Moses. Many are written by David. There are some from the sons of Korah and others from Asaph. And there's just multiple examples of God's saints through the ages. And they're in this collection called the Psalms. 150 Psalms. And they're actually meant to be read not merely individually, but as one big book made up of five books uh, telling of how God's people should return to Him in praise. And the Psalms deal with various emotions and various states of life that God's people find themselves in as they return to Him. And they also point forward to the kingdom of God in Messiah. Uh, One category of the Psalms that our psalm is taken from is known as the penitential Psalms. Psalm 51 is among several which have been categorized as Psalms of penitence or Psalms of repentance. And I take the view among many that the psalmist never sins when he's saying the prayers in the Psalms. But rather, under inspiration, the psalmist is modeling for God's people and for the choir and for all who would pray among God's generations. He models how we approach God with our feelings and with our experiences and with our thoughts, even our conflicting thoughts and our tensions. It's a gift that God gave us, the Psalms. It's not just poetical fluff. It's not just nice um, rhymes and meter. The Psalms are actually very raw, and they display how the human condition is to relate to God. 
Some of the most difficult emotions we face in the Christian life are emotions that relate to our ongoing battle with sin. And what I would like to do is look at this psalm and know that it deals with the emotions that accompany every person in this room that would seek revival in their soul. How do we approach God in our sin? Every saint, from the newest convert to a man like David after God's own heart, must deal on a daily basis with the constant and personal reality of their sin. In fact, this is one of the traits that validates the credibility of Scripture's witness. We would expect God's heroes, quote-unquote, to be writing only positive traits about themselves. But Scripture doesn't do that when it gives us the hymn book. It does not romanticize God's saints as though they're flawless or enlightened or reach some super higher plane where they never really sin anymore. God's people are presented before us in the Psalms with all their sins and all their blemishes and they're shown in all the raw emotions that accompany them. David is called a man after God's own heart and is held up to Israel and to us as the model of what it looks like to be faithful to Yahweh. And yet, David falls incredibly short of perfect faithfulness. And this is instructive for us. Just like every other saint, even he, the king, must humble himself and come before the Lord in contrition and brokenness. In fact, it can be argued, this is precisely what makes him the model for the nation. His broken-hearted repentance does not distort his example of being a man after God's own heart, but rather, it is what makes him a man after God's own heart. And that's very important because sometimes we think we have to be shiny and we have to have this perfect witness if we're going to be relevant in bringing revival. Like we just clean ourselves up. But that's not what it means to be after God's heart. David sinned. David fell short. Many of Israel's kings would totally apostatize and abandon God and give themselves completely to wickedness. But what makes David different is what makes him, is not just his relationship to God, but his relationship to his sin against God. That means this psalm, this prayer of repentance, should reflect the experience of every believer as they pursue a deeper relationship with God. This is what it means to be after God's heart. And I want to say that it should be familiar to us if we're being honest with our Christian life. We should be very familiar with this topic of repentance and the emotions that accompany it. Something is off if we don't relate to the struggle with Sin. Sin produces all kinds of emotions that don't disappear once we become a believer. Sin brings guilt. It brings shame. It brings sorrow. Fear. Regret. Frustration. Wretchedness. 
Uh, These are all common to man. And they're common to God's people. And we need direction from Scripture, which is the true mirror on how to navigate them in a way that leads to godly repentance. This psalm is given by God to every person here, and it guides all of us through the example of David and how we are to think and feel with regard to our ongoing sin. Uh, My hope today is that each of us hear it from God and that our hearts would become broken and our affections would be awakened from the principles that are contained in this psalm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to draw out, rather than going into every part of the verses, I just want to draw out four main responses that David has in this psalm with regard to his sin. And I just want to go over the characteristics based on each of those from the verses. And before I jump in and draw out those principles from this penitential psalm, I thought it would be most helpful to, to sort of lay out some groundwork. Because we're not going to appreciate how great this psalm is without seeing the big picture. I want to lay out the groundwork for the the historical and theological depth of this psalm. So what I'm going to do first is lay out the historical background to the psalm and see its place in the story of David and his place in redemptive history. And then what I want to do is I want to flesh out the theology of how his experience as an Old Testament saint still relates to ours in the New Covenant. So, history and theology. And then I'm going to circle back to the psalm. Psalm 51 is one of the few psalms that starts by giving its history. If you look at the very beginning, I don't know if many people realize this, this is actually an inspired part of the psalm. There's a heading that some of the psalms have, and this is one of the few that actually give the background. Look at the heading to Psalm 51. To the choir master... A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now many of us know the story and I'm not going to necessarily rehash every detail of it. But just to to give us the context, what I'm going to do is just read the story in a few verses as Samuel sums it up in 2 Samuel 11. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but 2 Samuel 11, in just a few verses, 2-5, through it's described what David did that led to this psalm of repentance. It says this, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. A little bit later it says, Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And just to sort of recap this, uh, David tried to cover his sin later on, you know the story, by bringing her husband Uriah home from battle so that he could lie with her and then they would think that the baby was born by them. Uh, Uriah was too noble to go into his wife while his comrades were in battle. And so David has another plan, and this is where it gets darker. 
He arranges to have Uriah killed in battle so that he could quickly marry Bathsheba and cover his sin that way. And some time goes by, and 2 Samuel 11 ends with a sober note to this deed that David had done. It says in 2 Samuel 11.27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so what God does is He takes action and He uses one of His prophets in the days of Israel. He sends Nathan the prophet to David with a parable that gets David to pronounce his own condemnation. And at the end of the parable, David sa- or Nathan says, you are the man. Not a compliment like you're the man. But he's identifying David's guilt through the parable, through David's outrage. And he asks a very pointed question, which gets to the heart of the matter of every sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David breaks in response to this and confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, This is what makes David a man after God's own heart. This is the centerpiece of the psalm we're going to look at. That David's brokenness was that he had sinned against the Lord. Nathan says something something to David in addition. He says astonishingly in verse 7, the Lord, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Now, there's a lot that's there. There's one phrase that is interesting that David, I'm sorry, that Nathan says in his rebuke. And he says, The Lord God has put away your sin. Now, it's important to lay all this out, not just because it's good background, but to show you and I how to feel how David felt in this psalm. David heard that his sin was put away, and yet, in this psalm, he still poured out his heart in repentance. How was David's sin put away? That's why it's astonishing that Nathan would say this. How was sin put away? God must deal with sin. Well, we know that David's sin was ultimately put away the same way all sin is put away. God held back His judgment upon David's sin until the day He would execute that judgment upon the Messiah on the cross. The blood of Christ flows backward and forward in redemptive history. In Romans 3.25, the Apostle Paul sums it up this way regarding all Old Testament saints. Paul says, in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. This means that God, at this moment in history, had passed over David's sin. Just like he had passed over all Old Testament saints' sins. So that someday he could be just and the justifier of David. And David didn't completely grasp that. He didn't see how this would be worked out. But 
we know that the death of Jesus is how David and every saint is forgiven before God so that it can be said, the Lord has put away His sin. And it's, it's real and objective forgiveness. And this is where redemptive history intersects with redemptive theology. I want us to know from the forefront that David's redemption has the same grounding as you and I. Now, why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning it because there are some who might look at this psalm, and many like it, in the Old Testament and claim that Christians today don't have to feel the same level of penitence that David did. Because he was still looking forward and the transaction of redemption hadn't happened, uh, perhaps he, was, he should have felt more grief and more penitence. Some theologians have claimed that our experience with sin should not match the experience of David because Christ didn't die yet. Uh, the idea is that Old Testament saints had more reason to feel penitence over sin than Christians who have a greater understanding of grace. And that's just totally incorrect. Thank you for turning on the air. <laughs> uh, it's incorrect to think that New Testament saints can feel more lax about sin because they look backward on the sacrifice of Christ than Old Testament saints who were still looking forward. Uh, this psalm is held up for God's people to pray for all the ages of redemptive history. In other words, we're no less dependent on God's grace than David. We're no less desperate than David. Our need for daily repentance and the sorrow that comes with repentance is no less than David. And thus our experience of repentance is no less penitent than David. David's forgiveness, though awaiting the future transaction at Calvary, was no less in question than ours. He had a sure standing place. God's prophet Nathan said, your sin has been put away. And it was as good as done because God cannot lie. David could trust at that moment his sin was forgiven. And yet, he goes to this psalm and writes it. And he expresses penitent repentance. I wanted to lay that out because we're not in some special place that David wasn't. Confession of sin, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, does not commend us to God's grace. Rather, confession of sin is evidence of God's grace and it appropriates God's people to align themselves in that grace. And this is where theology becomes so important to Christian practice. Confession and repentance don't add to our forgiveness. Jesus purchased our final forgiveness. And we can add nothing to that sacrifice. Nothing to that standing we have in Him. Confession and repentance don't add to our forgiveness, but rather what confession does is it appropriates us 
to God's forgiveness. And that's a very important distinction. It's what distinguishes Christianity from all systems of human achievement and penance. We appropriate to the forgiveness that is already ours. Objective forgiveness is accomplished in Christ once for all. But our daily sin in the flesh contradicts our standing in Christ. And so we're called in our sanctification to confess and appropriate ourselves in a walk that is a manner worthy of our calling. It's the already and not yet of sanctification. This is why 1 John 1, in talking about confession of sin, assures us that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You would think that faithful and just would be to punish us for our sins. God is just is not good news. But in the Gospel, if justice has been served on Christ, we have assurance that if we go to Him in our sin, He is faithful to forgive us. For justice has been satisfied. A Christian who doesn't seek to appropriate themselves to their position in Christ can have no assurance that they're in that position. The nominal Christian will see the sacrifice of Christ and think, this, shall I sin that grace may abound? And they live carelessly because it's just a license for sin. The one who has been changed is gradually matching their position. They're being sanctified. They're constantly appropriating themselves because they've been given a love for the one who gave himself for them. This is what it means to be sanctified, to become what we are. And this was the case with David. He was told that his sin was put away as good as done. And this did not in any way diminish in his mind the need for a humble and expressive repentance. David heard that his sin was put away and he wasn't lax about it in the least. But rather, he saw that it was fitting in view of God's compassion to appropriate himself in confession and repentance. And that's what this psalm is. And, as, and we as fellow saints, like forgiven David, are called to daily confess our sin as it becomes apparent to us, as the Spirit shows it to us. And so by connecting our redemption across history and theology with David, uh, let's learn from his repentance so that we can live out that repentance. So I just wanted to sort of spell all that out so that we are connected with what's happening in this psalm. And in going to this psalm, let's not merely view this psalm as focused on David's sin and a story about David. Let's come to this thinking about our sin and our story. Uh, Let's not merely read this and be fascinated about something that happened to a king in Israel praying a penitential psalm, uh, but may the Holy Spirit convict our hearts to pray like Him. 
this is inspired. With David's emotions, to be sure. But the Lord wants to use His Word to direct our emotions toward Him. And we can learn from His responses and be crushed in a way that lays hold of God's mercy and honors Him. And so, like I said, what I want to do is draw out four ways that David responds to God. Four ways that David responds in light of his sin, even knowing that his sin is put away. Let's begin in verse 1, and I'm just going to go to different verses, but just to sort of lay this out. Verse 1, David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Uh, Here we observe what should be the saint's first response in repentance. Number one, what I observe is David turns to God. David turns to God. That's the first step of godly repentance. That we go to God. I saw a phrase somewhere, and I didn't jot it down, so I hope I say it right, but it was a little cheesy, but it sort of made a point. Um, the person who is stuck in religion says, I sinned, my dad's going to kill me. And the person touched by grace in Christ says, I sinned. I need to go to my dad. If you're in Christ, you should go to God. First place you should go. Because He's not going to crush you. You have had the crushing happen already in Christ. David knows his sin is put away, and he knows he needs to turn to God. And he points out specific attributes as he cries out to Him. He cries out for God's mercy according to his steadfast love. David sees his only hope as the mercy and love of God. This is such a crucial starting point. We know that this was not David's first response in the story, but often it isn't the first place we begin either. How often we sin and we don't go immediately to our merciful and loving God. Sin can often deceive us and harden us for a season. And we look many other places. We look in our hearts. We compare ourselves to other people. Before we ever take a step toward repentance, we're like our parents in the garden when they hid themselves from the presence of God, sowing fig leaves together. And we think we need to sort of get our act together before we can ever go back and turn to God. And that is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is the voice of the one who is called the accuser of the brethren in Scripture. That's the voice of Satan himself. Our enemy, Satan, is not merely one who tempts us into sin. I think that's just the beginning of his work. He's after not just tempting us, but keeping us from God to accuse us with our sin. He uses not only sin, but the effects of our sin, the guilt of our sin. And He tells us that we can't come. Look at what you did again. You did this again. You've come to God about this before. You can't come to Him now. 
He points our guilt. He points out our guilt before God the judge. Now, notice what David remembered. He remembered the attributes of mercy and steadfast love. This is what we need to remember if we're going to take a step toward repentance. Uh, Through all the accusations, which are legitimate objectively, all the guilt, which we should feel guilt about sin, through all the fear, we must see God who is abundant in mercy. Mercy that can blot out even the most heinous transgressions. We need to go to the cross where God has expressed that love. It's important to note that David, a man after God's heart, was familiar with God's heart. He already knew these attributes very well. Now, he also knew God was just. And he surely knew that he must judge sin. But David, as one who meditated on God's Word day and night, he knew Him as the God of redemption. Uh, David was familiar with God's heart in His gracious covenant. He knew of God's mercy many times. Uh, David had these truths already hidden in his heart, and now they're just becoming alive. Have you ever had that happen? Where truths you already knew suddenly come to mind in a way that moves your soul toward God. Uh, Many of the things we learn about God may not be the most precious to us until a later season He has prepared for us. Perhaps David remembered Exodus where God says, He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David knew there were guilty sinners who would not be forgiven. And there were others who would be redeemed and not counted guilty. He saw this only in part, and he didn't know the complete way that God was going to arrange redemption. But by faith, he laid hold of God's mercy. And we who know Jesus and can look back at His work of redemption can also lay hold of His mercy. Uh, Keep the mercy and love of God ever in your minds. When you sin... Turn to God and remember them. Look at the next verse that David says. Having turned to God for mercy, he says this, a petition. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So having turned to God is the first response. Number two, a second response. Number two, God or David prays for cleansing. David prays for cleansing. He adds to this a few verses down in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, This is where repentance is more than just a change of mind. It's more than just going, I've sinned against God. It, It moves forward 
and it turns to God, but it is also fitting that we ask God to cleanse us. Uh, to not be content to be in that state anymore. Uh, there's significance to David referring to hyssop. Um, when a house had a disease in Israel, hyssop was a branch used by the priest to sprinkle blood on the house and then declare it to be clean. Uh, David wants to clean house. David alludes to this in a heartfelt way, feeling his own filth and crying out to God as his ultimate priest to declare him clean from his sin. This is another distinguishing mark of God's true saints. They turn to God their Father, but they're not content just to cry out and say, I did it. They cry out for cleansing. It's fitting that the other part of 1 John 1.9 about confessing our sin says that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need this on a daily basis. We need this cleansing. And it's nothing we can do. Just like the priests had to make the house clean. There's nothing anyone else can do. We're we're too often recovering Pharisees. And we sin and we feel shame and we think that we are, you know, we have to sort of win God's favor back. That we could sort of clean up our act. David cries out. He's past keeping any pretenses. And remember, he's been covering up his sin up until this point, and he's. He's exhausted from the effort and he comes helpless to God and he's in a good place when he does that. He's past maintaining his dignity in front of others or himself. He's not putting up a front anymore. He acknowledges his filth for what it is and says, cleanse me. And this is the mark of God's people. You remember when Peter said to Christ when he's washing their feet, um, Peter says, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Speaking spiritually of his sanctification. So David turns to God. The next thing is, he prays for cleansing from God. Look at what David does next as a response. Look at verses 3-6. through David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and you're blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Having turned to God, having asked God for cleansing, David, number three, David confesses the seriousness of his sin. David confesses the seriousness of his sin. I think this is important because he's not just content just to ask for forgiveness and let it be that. Uh, David is actually 
examining his heart and he's examining the real gravity of his sin before God. This is where his emotions are most laid bare in the psalm. And it's directed in a way toward his full repentance. There's there's a lot we don't consider when we confess our sin to God. It is more than just declaring to God what we did. It is agreeing with God what He says about sin. And not just that it's wrong, but the gravity of why it is wrong and how grievous it is. Uh, There are five aspects of this confession to draw out from David in his confession. And I don't want to add points to my points, but there are five things quickly David says in these verses. Let's look at different aspects of this confession. How it's more than just declaring his sin. Number one, he confesses to God that his sin is inscribed on his conscience. David is totally transparent. He says in verse 3, My sin is ever before me. I love the honesty and the openness he feels toward God. This isn't a formality for David. David isn't going through the motions. But he is venting out his heart to God, that the memory of his sin is killing him inside. He says it is ever before him. He's, he's past the point of trying to cover it up. He comes clean to God and confesses how he feels about his sin. And all of us can relate to these feelings. And all of us when we have these feelings, should bring them to God. How many times we've done something awful that we know is grieving the Holy Spirit and we can't get it out of our minds. Guilt overtakes us and we just replay it over and over in our memory. And we can become stuck in that place. And Satan, of course, wants to keep us stuck in that place to diminish our effectiveness and our growth. Uh, What a guide for us that David confesses this to God. God made our conscience and He made the feelings that we have when we violate His standards. And we can go to Him about it. Another aspect of his confession. Verse 4, David confesses that his sin is mainly against God. He doesn't just say, I have sinned. That's what Saul did. I've sinned, Samuel. I've played the fool. He just felt bad that the effects of his sin were coming in on him. David is most grieved that he sinned against God. Yeah, This is the central focus of David's sorrow. How often we feel sorrow over sin, mainly because our lives are falling apart because of it. And God uses those providences to corral us back and He does chastise us. But how often, when we get to that place of repentance, we're not really grieved that we've offended Him. Maybe we're grieved that we've driven others away. Or maybe we're just uh, filled with self-pity about our sin. We're just frustrated that we did it again. Such sorrow is not enough. 
The New Testament in, first, in 2 Corinthians calls this worldly repentance. Judas had this kind of sorrow. And then he hung himself. Godly sorrow, sorrow that leads to repentance, is marked by David confesses here that his sin was against God. That doesn't mean that Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby weren't hurt by his sin. It means that what makes sin to be sin is that sin is against God. Hurting man is bad. But that's not the greatest horror of sin. Sin ultimately is rebellion against the God who made us. And when we confess this before God, we get closer to the heart of what real repentance is that He desires. Because He personally wants to relate to us. And sin is personal. Another, a third aspect of David's confession that is just gushing out of him in this psalm. There's no self-justification. Notice there's not one defense given from David as he confesses. God, I just wasn't being careful. I just, well, he's just not giving. Oh, I was tired. Kings went off to war and I was, I was tired that day. Or whatever he might say. He simply owns it and says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Uh, this is truly God-centered repentance. Uh, this is the way we're directed to think and feel that God would be just to damn us. But our continuing on is only due to His mercy. David vindicates God in his repentance, not himself. It's just something to notice about him here. Another thing that David has, a fourth thing about his confession. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now that might, think like, that might seem like an odd thing to put in your confession of your sin before God. I've always thought this was a very interesting line in the midst of the psalm. But there's significance to it. Uh, David is drawing attention to his inborn corruption. Uh, David's not just analyzing this superficially on the surface. This is usually what people use to diminish their sense of personal guilt. Why? I am a sinner. And therefore I sinned again. It's interesting that David uses this to intensify his guilt. To show that he is more culpable. He doesn't say I was born this way and he's cavalier about it. What's interesting here is that David uses this fact of his inborn corruption to show how guilty he is. For David, all the sins he committed were expressions of something far worse. He is by nature an adulterer. He is by nature a murderer. He's by nature a liar who covers it up. These aren't just things he stumbled in. David realizes what he's actually made of. That apart from any of God's grace or restraints, he is a sinner through and through. 
And he confesses this in his repentance. He remembers this. Uh, This is as introspective as we can possibly get before God. We, like David, should be so moved by the depths of our sin that we search out our whole being and confess to Him that in ourselves there is nothing good. We are born in sin. And our remaining flesh wants to cling to sin. And we need nothing short of His deliverance from sin. It's a total reliance upon God. And He confesses this. The last thing, fifth, that, he, that we can look at in His confession if we look, he says in verse 6, he admits that the sin he committed was against the light that he had. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It was God who made David wise. And it was God's law that David received. And David confesses before God that he is even further without excuse. This is truly full confession. David is honest with himself and honest before God. He realizes that being a man after God's heart and being the king of Israel and having the privileges of God's law didn't at all lighten it. In fact, it made him more accountable before God. Uh, How often we don't confess like all of these different characteristics that are laid for us in this psalm. We make excuses that we weren't thinking straight when the truth is that God has so richly blessed us with so much light and so much wisdom, and yet we've still sinned against this. I think this was the sting behind Nathan the prophet's rebuke. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? That is what we do when we sin. We see the limits, what the word transgression means, to go over boundaries. We see the boundary and we decide, I'm going past it. And David owns this. Before we move on from David's confession to our last point, um, let me also point out that David was confronted when to, that this whole confession was the result of being confronted. He joined Nathan and God in condemning his sin and confessing the depths of his evil. And I was just thinking in God's providence, uh, would that we respond the same way when we're lovingly confronted by sin in our lives, by the hand of our brothers and sisters. God doesn't just prick our heart when we open our Bibles, although he does that. He also sends people into our lives to point out our sin and hold up the mirror. And we should be very open to what God is doing when He is pointing out our sin and receive it. Look for it. Our disposition to be to concede before we resist. This is confession. So after turning to God for mercy... And number two, praying for cleansing. And number three, confessing the depth of his sin. We lastly see 
a fourth aspect of David's response in that he pleads for something more than just forgiveness. More than just forgiveness. Number four, David pleads for renewal. David pleads for renewal. He doesn't want to just get off the hook. He doesn't want to just have his guilt canceled. He is passionate about being changed. Notice a few of the ways he pleads for revival throughout this psalm. First of all, he begins to pray for joy to be restored. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's astonishing that nowhere in the psalm does he pray directly about adultery. It all started with that, leading to deceit, leading to murder. Or did it? Why isn't he crying out for more restraint? Why isn't he praying for protecting his eyes better and getting purer thoughts? Surely those are things we should pray for. But he's really zeroing in on the main issue. The reason is that he knows that his sin is a symptom of a much deeper problem. People give way to sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and contentment in the Lord. All of us fall into sin when God does not have the place in our feelings and thoughts that He should. It's been said that an idol is anything that takes the place in our heart that belongs to God. And David knew this about himself. It's true about us too. David is showing us and modeling for us by the way he prays what the real need is. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. It's profound wisdom for us to get back to that place of joy with God. Notice also about his plea for renewal that he goes beyond desiring joy to the root matter, a change in his heart. He prays in verse 10 for a clean heart and a renewed spirit. Uh, He wants to be done with the kind of instability he experienced and he wants newness. And we who have received the new covenant have a new heart placed within us. And we must constantly pray that God would complete the work that He began in us. We still have indwelling sin. And we need Him to renew our spirit so that we can enter into His joy, appropriating ourselves to Him. And His plea didn't end there. Not just receiving joy. Next, he prays in verse 11 that he be not casted away from his presence and that his Holy Spirit not be taken away. Now, I think we would make a mistake if we dismissed this detail and just said, well, that was, we all have the Holy Spirit, and David, you know, like kings, had the Holy Spirit use them for a season in a different way. And we know the Holy Spirit can't be taken away from us, but I think we still can glean a principle behind this. Uh, We're called to make our calling and election sure. 
And one of the horrible effects of sin is that it does grieve the Holy Spirit. A Thessalonians says that we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can even lose assurance of our salvation when we live in patterns of sin. And I think this is actually the heart behind David's cry. That, that we, like him, should cry out that he would confirm to us that we're his. This is the first step in a cry for renewal, a fresh confidence that we belong to him. It's fitting to pray for this assurance. And then verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Uh, Finally, in his plea for renewal, David asks that his life would become a faithful witness. He wants this renewal and this joy to overflow to others. He's not just content to be forgiven. In his repentance, he's not just content to be clean and cleansed. He's not content to just remember that God still loves him and that he is he belongs to God. He's not even just content to have a right, renewed spirit. He will not be content until his broken life serves the healing of others. David is looking back to not just getting rid of the bad actions, but turning toward the good actions. He says, Then it will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I think we often miss this part of our repentance. One of the reasons Satan wants to accuse us and keep us from coming to God is not just to keep us in a place where we're not coming to God, but it diminishes our effectiveness for others. We too need this attitude in our repentance. Satan would love for God's people to be stuck wallowing in sin and not teaching transgressors his ways. Like David, we need to repent in such a way that we would return to effectiveness for Christ and His kingdom. And verses 14 through 15 basically flow from this. He pleads for deliverance from such reproachable sin and prays that praise would be the result. Uh, the crescendo of the psalm, the very end, verse 17, having turned to God and prayed for cleansing, pouring out his heart in confession, And appealing to God for renewal, David leaves us with a discovery that should direct all of our minds and emotions to great encouragement. He leaves us with a discovery that we too can discover as we come to God. Verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Uh, This is actually foundational to everything in the psalm. It's actually the point that it's meant to teach us. And I can't help but think that maybe this was the first thing David was touched by when his sin was exposed. He knew from Nathan that God had taken away his sin and he discovered that there was nothing stopping him from coming to his God except his own hardness of heart. Under everything, 
he discovered that God had crushed him in love. God was after his heart. A broken and contrite heart is the mark of all God's children, and it will be all the way till we get home when he finishes the work he began in us. As I've sort of just laid out this psalm, and the, what characterizes our repentance, I hope that we've just thought about uh, how much there is that God is doing in our hearts when we approach him with our sin. If there is sin you are broken over, or if you feel under the weight of conviction, we're urged from the Scripture to not make the mistake of thinking that we will someday get beyond that in this life. Our hearts are always frail, and they're always going to be broken. But Jesus is always our great physician, and He's always in the work of returning our hearts to Him and His joy. Let's also turn to Him and be cleansed and confess and be renewed at His throne of grace. Jesus bore our sins when His body was broken on that cross so that we can always come to Him broken and not be despised. Let's pray. Father, as we just consider these thoughts which... Lord, You've given us in Your Word, You've given us the inner workings of the heart, You've revealed how You want us to approach You, how we're to deal with our sin, and You've revealed Your character to us, that You welcome us, and You cleanse us, and You renew us, and You use us. I pray that, Lord, You would do that with us as we seek You. Help us to not merely rest in our standing in Christ, but help us to always be pursuing You, Lord, as we conform to the image of Christ. I pray that You would help us to be a people who are marked by repentance and marked by turning from sin and turning toward You who gave Yourself for our sin. Lord, we thank You and we pray that You would bless the rest of our time in worship and our fellowship, that we would grow and be the people You want us to be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.